Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's make sure that we are ready to study the word. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to use First John 1, 9 if necessary, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful we can come together again this evening just to be refreshed by your word. We're reminded that your word is more precious than all other things in life. It's more precious than gold and it's more precious than anything that we can imagine. And we have taken the time this evening to pause and to reflect upon your eternal truths as we've seen your plan unfolded in your word and to See how your, the prophecies made by Jacob and the ancient world have come true over the course of time and how you will be true to your promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by bringing Israel back to the land, restoring them to the land, and establishing your kingdom in the future. Now, fathers, we study these things. We pray that they might be a source of encouragement and strength for us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Genesis 49. In Genesis 49, and up to this point, we have looked at <clears throat> Jacob's prophecy regarding his uh, the first six sons. Now, the first four of them were the first four sons born to Leah, and then the second two were the last two sons born to Leah. There were others born in between the fourth and the fifth. But he covers all of the sons of Leah first. And then in verse 15, Genesis 49:15, he shifts from the uh, sons of Leah to the four sons from the concubines and begins to go through uh, <clears throat> those sons. He begins with Dan, and the prophecy for Dan is rather interesting before he comes to uh, Gad, and then he goes to Gad and Asher and Naphtali. Those are rather short. We'll probably not get there this evening. Uh, we'll probably focus on Dan. There's a lot to say regarding this prophecy of Dan. There's some problems with interpretation. There's some uh, misunderstandings out there. People tend to think that based on this prophecy that the Antichrist comes from the tribe of Dan, some things like that that we'll have to 
look into. Here's a prophecy, three verses. I took them from the New American Standard uh, simply because it's a good translation here, uh, not for any, any uh, major reason. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heel so that his rider falls backward. Now, those two verses form the core of the prophecy, and then there's sort of a prayerful interlude there as Jacob is meditating upon Dan and upon these prophecies, and he there's this interlude in verse 18 where he focuses on God's redemptive plan. And actually, this is the first time in the Old Testament that we have the Hebrew word Yasha, which is the word for salvation or deliverance. It's used primarily in the Old Testament of physical deliverance, of rescue, and the uh, deliverance of the nation in times of trouble. We, As I pointed out many, many times, especially in our study of Hebrews, problem that we have in American evangelicalism is that we've taken certain biblical words and we've you know, made them part of our evangelical jargon and we use them in ways that aren't the same as the ways they're used in the Bible. And so we always want to know if somebody's saved and yet in numerous passages, probably in the majority of passages, the word for salvation in the, in the Bible either refers to physical deliverance or as it does in many cases in uh, Pauline epistles, it refers to either the ongoing deliverance from the uh, from the presence of or from the power of sin in the Christian life, to the uh, de- future deliverance from the uh, presence of sin at glorification. And the, in Pauline vocabulary, justification is the word that he uh, goes to more often than not in terms of what we normally think of as getting saved. So when people read gaining eternal life and regeneration into uh, every time they see the word saved, they're going to get in some real traps in terms of trying to understand the Scripture. So we'll just focus tonight on these first two verses. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backwards. What a rather cryptic uh, prophecy uh, that is. The prophecy for Dan that begins, Dan shall judge his people, is based on a play on words with the name of the tribe and the Hebrew word for judge. Now what's important here is that we have to understand that there are two different Hebrew words, two synonyms for this concept of judging. And they have different emphases. One is a broader term. One is a narrower term. The first term is the word that's up there on the screen, shafat, which is a word meaning to judge or to, or to govern. It is more often than not translated as judge, but it's a much broader term. It's much broader than our modern concept of the judiciary. We think of a judge as a man on a bench who adjudicates criminal or civil action. But the judge in the Old Testament, the Shofetim, the judges, were men who uh, often ruled. They had they led the nation in military conquest of their enemies. They also made 
uh, decisions where there were disputes between people. But more often than not, it was a word that uh, related to somebody who was ruling or controlling the nation, the, the key leader in the nation. I have up here two definitions. One is taken from the complete uh, word study dictionary of the Old Testament. And then the second one, hallowed, is the most recent a scholarly Hebrew dictionary, the Hebrew Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament, which summarizes the meaning of Shaphat as to rule or to control. This is the word that is used exclusively in the book of Judges. The, in fact, the title of the book is the Shofatim, the Judges. And so all of the those who judged in the book of Judges are described according to this particular word. So that is a, a leadership term. It's a broad term. It could include everything from military conquest to making decisions in, uh, in, of a personal nature or, or deciding uh, areas of, of disagreement. The word that we find in Genesis 49 is not the word shofatim or shafat. It is not a word for ruling in that sense. It is a word that is much more restrictive. In its restrictive sense, the two words are often used as synonyms, but shafat has a broader sense as well. The word that is translated judge in Genesis 49.16 is the Hebrew word din. That's D-I-N, sort of a, but the I is pronounced like our long E, and that's where you get the name Dan. Dan is a word that it, the name is based on the word for justice. So the um, complete word study dictionary of the Old Testament says that this is a verb meaning to bring justice, to go to court, to pass sentence, to contend for something, to act as a judge, to govern, to plead a cause, to be at strife or to quarrel. So, obviously, quarreling and being at strife and the idea of gaining or acquiring justice are at the uh, little bit different ends of the spectrum. But that's the primary idea is bringing about uh, justice. And so it's a very narrow concept when compared with Shaphat. Halot, the uh, Hebrew American lexicon of the Old Testament, says that the meaning of this word is to plead one's cause to contend with someone over, a, it would be a judicial issue, or to execute judgment. So this is the basic meaning of the word. It's not a word that would indicate rulership. There are those who have misread the Hebrew here and the connotation of this word and thought that this had something to do with uh, Dan's future rulership or leadership in the tribulation period. And when you link that with the next verse, with verse 16 and the allusion to a serpent and the horse's heels and everything, there are those who jump to an illegitimate conclusion that this indicated the rulership of the Antichrist and that the Antichrist would come from the tribe of Dan in the tribulation period. The problem with that is if you get into Revelation, as we will on Sunday morning sometime in the next year, um, that the Antichrist is the first beast who comes out of the sea. He is the ruler of the ten-nation confederacy, which is referred to in Daniel chapter 9 
and an allusion to the same people who uh, conquered Jerusalem in AD 70. That's a Gentile. That is not a Jew. So the Antichrist can't come from the tribe of Dan because the Antichrist is going to be a Gentile that will come from the remnants of the old Roman Empire. And don't forget, that could include uh, numerous areas around the Mediterranean, so that would not necessarily exclude uh, someone who was uh, <clears throat> who was from an Arab or Syrian background because those areas were, are Turkish, because those areas were all under and part of the former uh, Roman Empire. So the term Dean is a much more narrow term, and it just emphasizes the fact that um, when uh, Rachel named him, his mother was Bilhah, but when Rachel named him, she felt like she was being vindicated before God because Bilhah was serving as her substitute uh, in childbirth, and so we'll, we'll get to that in just a minute. Well, let's have a summary of Dan's tribal history before we get into some of the details. This is sort of following the old time-honored procedure. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you, then I'm going to tell you, and then later on I'll tell you what I told you. First of all, the descendants of Dan displayed wonderful achievements as well as some gross failures. It's heavier on the gross failure end than it is on the brilliant achievement end. Trust me. This tribe is not known because of their great spiritual interest in their positive volition to God. So, But they do have some positive achievements, not in the spiritual realm but they have tremendous failure in the spiritual realm. They are responsible for leading the nation into idolatry at many times in their history. Second thing we should note is that the Danites were the second most numerous tribe in the wilderness period. In Numbers, where you have a census at the beginning and another census at the end, uh, they're second only to the tribe of Judah. Yet if you look at the tribal allotment, as we will, their, the land allotment, the inheritance set apart for Dan, was not uh, nearly the size of the allotment for Judah. They uh, were the second most numerous tribe. They failed to take their, their land. When they entered into the land in uh, Judges chapter 1, they completely failed to dislodge the Amorite residents that are there. This is due to their uh, spiritual failure. They failed to exclusively trust God. Third thing we should note is one of the better uh, members of this tribe is Aholiab, who was Bezalel's assistant. Bezalel was the chief craftsman. He was the chief uh, construction engineer on the on the tabernacle, the chief craftsman, goldsmith, and, Bez, and Aholiab was his assistant, and he is also from this particular tribe. So he's on the positive end. At the other end, you have uh, the womanizing, self-absorbed Samson, and these are the two most famous members of this particular tribe. At the end of the wilderness period, as they're about to go into the land, there is another uh, prophetic statement made by about Dan by Moses. This is in Deuteronomy 33:22, and Moses refers to the tribe as a lion's cub, using a, a term and an imagery that is very similar to the imagery Jacob uses for the tribe of Judah 
and as a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's a difference in the metaphor, which we'll see when we get to that particular passage. Fifth thing we should note is that (coughs) the period of the Judges is when we primarily see a lot of information about the tribe of Dan. And this involves two key events, and we can't even come close to covering both of them this evening. One has to do with Samson and his judgeship. And Samson's judgeship is covered in 1 Samuel 13, 14, 15, and 16, four chapters devoted to Samson. That's more than anyone else in the book of Judges. And it's very important to understand the role of Samson within the history of Israel. And he is a, he's from the tribe of Dan. And that's followed in chapters 17 and 18 by a focus on this migration that occurs by the Danites from the south to the north. They're, they're in the southern part down near, uh, as we'll see, down near Judah. They're, they're never able to uh, defeat the Amorites. They're never able to secure their inheritance. So in this period of the judges, they send out some scouts. They go on a long-range reconnaissance mission and find some land up in the north, extreme northern tip of the land of Canaan. They think they can defeat the inhabitants there, so they go back and they get they form up at their um, various uh, military units and they go and attack the the ancient Canaanite city of Laish, and that later becomes known as the city of Dan, and it's in the northernmost part of of Israel, and they conquer the uh, people in Laish and establish their uh, their inheritance in the northern part of the, the land. But when in doing so, they pick up this, uh, this reprobate Le- Levite priest who's apostate and he- take him up to, to Dan to establish an alternative worship site and an alternative religion. And he is a grandson or great-grandson or descendant of, of Moses and... Uh, so they they think that he has some legitimacy, and this becomes a trap and a snare for uh, <clears throat> for the Danites throughout the rest of history. They succumb to idolatry at that point in history, and they never get out of it until the uh, northern kingdom goes out under divine discipline when they're conquered by the by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. So their their greatest success is the conquest at Laish, and their greatest failure is establishing idolatry at Laish or the city of Dan. And then the last point in terms of summary is simply that though some have argued that the Antichrist comes from the tribe of Dan, this cannot be supported biblically. The tribe is omitted later on from the genealogies in 1 Chronicles chapters 2 through 10, and I could add that it's also omitted from the list of the 12 tribes that are mentioned in Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7, God is going to seal 12,000 Jews from each of the 12 tribes, and he lists the 12 tribes. But Dan is left out. There's no evangelist, no Jewish evangelist from the tribe of Dan during the tribulation period. But nevertheless, God's grace still provides them with a future, and they do have an inheritance in the land according to Ezekiel's layout and apportionment of the land during the Millennial Kingdom. Now that gives us a summary, so let's back up and pick up the details. 
the birth of Dan occurred when, when um, after Leah had had four sons, Rachel is still unable to conceive and is barren. And so Rachel offered her handmaid Bilhah to Jacob. And we read this story in Genesis chapter 30, verses 1 through 4. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister, that would be Leah, and said to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. And Jacob's anger was aroused against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? See, we see her frustration because even at this early stage in Israel's history, there is this understanding of the importance of of childbearing for the woman and the importance of having a male child. That goes back to God's prophecy to Eve in Genesis 3.15 that the Messiah would be the seed of the woman. And so she is unable to fulfill her role and her place in the family as the one who brings forth the next generation. And so she is she's completely frustrated over this, and she's blaming Jacob. And Jacob, in turn, not in uh, inappropriately, says it's God's will. And God is the one who will ultimately determine when you can give birth. So she does an end run, which was typical in the culture of that time, just like Sarah had done. Now, this seems very odd to us, but... <clears throat> In the ancient world, fertility and child production were extremely important. That's why they gave birth to the whole uh, fertility cults and all of these sexual uh, aberrations that occurred within those uh, various fertility religions in order to try to motivate the gods to uh, make the women pregnant. But in the ancient world, uh, you have parallels to this. For example, in the uh, law code of Hammurabi, who lived approximately this same time, plus or minus a, a century, there are uh, law, laws to protect the concubine so that if the wife was unable to produce a male heir for the husband, then her servant could come in in her place as her substitute and give birth to uh, the male heir. And then in case there were problems of jealousy in the home because you've got two women now who've been uh, intimate with the husband and so there'd be problems of uh, all kinds of things could could happen in that situation that the uh, laws were designed to protect the uh, handmaiden, the servant girl, so that she would not be uh, left out in the cold or left without an inheritance or something of that nature. So we're told in Genesis 30 verse 5, Three and four, we have the offer of Bilhah, and in verse five and six we read, Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged my case. See, that's where we have that word deen. Rachel says, God has vindicated me in essence. He has recognized my plight, recognized that I'm barren, and now he has vindicated me by uh, allowing my handmaiden to give birth to a son, and that is my, considered my, would, would be considered her son. So she is praising God here. God has judged my case. He has also heard my voice, given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan, because Dan sounds like uh, the verb for uh, judgment. By the way, God also regulated this practice in the Mosaic Law in order to protect the handmaiden, the servant girl, from, from being abused. 
It doesn't mean that God was authorizing the practice. It meant that God recognized that this practice would go on, and he wanted to establish uh, laws of justice in order to protect and uh, protect them from abuse. Now, after the birth of Dan and the mention of Dan as one of the 12 sons, nothing is said about him in Genesis other than he's, he's there, he's present. Then we, the next time we have any reference to Dan is in the book of, of uh, Exodus and at the time of the Exodus. In Numbers uh, 139, we learn that there were 62,700 men in the tribe of Dan as they left Egypt. As they were leaving Sinai, when they took that first census, there were 62,700 men in Dan, according to Numbers 139. In Numbers 26.42, after the Exodus generation has died off and they're about to enter the land now for the uh, second time, in Numbers 26.42, they took a second census and the tribe of Dan had actually increased to 64,400. So it is the second largest tribe on the entry into the land. Fourth point we should note in terms of their <clears throat> the description of how the uh, Israelites were to camp in the wilderness and how they were to move through the wilderness. Dan was on the north side, so of the encampment, the north side of the of the tabernacle, and in the marching order, in the order of march, Dan would bring up the rear. Now the next specific mention we have is Deuteronomy thirty three twenty two after the uh, uh, <clears throat> census. Moses is giving a blessing to the people and goes through the tribes. And here he gives a blessing to Dan. He says, Dan is a lion's whelp. He shall leap from Bashan. So what we have to do when we interpret things of this nature is we have to understand something about how these figures of speech were used in the ancient world. We can't just sort of get... Uh, uh, go off and start uh, humming a little tune, gaze into outer space, and then just take a leap of uh, faith into some unknown void to figure out what we think this means. You have to go in and, and do some work in the background to figure out what the emphasis is. Lions were often used as symbols of power, symbols of majesty, symbols of royalty, as well as symbols of just military uh, strength and prowess. And that's the idea here. Moses is emphasizing that Dan would be like a lion's cub, a young lion that would be strong, that would have military power over its enemies. And this is fulfilled in the historical event of their migration north and the conquest of Laish. That second phrase in the, in the prophecy, he shall leap from Bashan, doesn't mean that he's going to come from Bashan or that the, this military activity is going to occur in Bashan. It simply means that it's simply an allusion to the fact that this is an area where there were many hills and caves and there were a lot of lions and leopards at that particular time in history. So it is a uh, it just embellishes on the imagery of the power, the military power of this lion's whelp. 
Bashan was located in the Transjordan. This was where Og, the king of Bashan, ruled, according to Numbers 21, 33 to 35. And it was a well-known area to be very dangerous. The herdsmen that operated there constantly had to be on their guard from the lions and the leopards that roamed in that particular area. Now, the next time we have Dan mentioned is in the conquest in the book of Joshua and the first chapter of the book of Judges. Dan was given a territory that is adjacent to Judah, down here in the south. The green area is the area that was allocated to Judah. The uh, blue area, blue-gray area in the middle of Judah was the territory designated for Simeon, and it is this uh, sort of L-shaped area here, the green in the center, that is the area designated for Dan. It is just due west of Jerusalem and extended uh, along that hill country there and then took a turn north going up to Joppa. That Joppa is where uh, Peter was in Acts chapter 10 when he has the vision to go up to Cornelius. Uh, Joppa is the port, I believe, where where Jonah uh, departed on his uh, as he went to Tarshish. Joppa is was a sm- very small uh, harbor there, and in the early 20th century, a Jewish settlement was begun just outside of Joppa that has now grown to be a major uh, metropolitan area in Israel known as Tel Aviv. So Joppa is just sort of swallowed up by Tel Aviv. But this was the area that was designated for the tribe of Dan, but they they were unable to carry out their mission and to conquer their enemies because of their failure to trust God. God had already given the um, conquest generation incredible victories at, at, at Jericho, at Ai, at numerous other places. But when it came to the mopping up operation that's described in the first chapter of Judges, they became increasingly uh, <clears throat> less willing to trust God and more willing to compromise with the inhabitants. And once you come down to about verse uh, 27, in the first chapter of, uh, of Judges, you begin to see this, uh, this ongoing litany of failure. Verse 27, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean, and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, for the Canaanites were determined to dwell in the land. Verse uh, 29, nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites in Gezer. Verse 30, nor did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of, of Catron. Uh, verse 31, nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon. Uh, verse 33, nor did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of, of Beth Shemesh are the inhabitants of Beth Anath. And then uh, we're told in verse 34 of Judges 134, the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountain. See, up to that point, you just have failure, that the, the Jews came in, tried to defeat the Canaanites, and they were in turn defeated. But here, they're not only defeated, they're pushed back. With, with Dan, there's com- a complete rout and they're pushed back up into the hill country of Judah, and they weren't allowed to come down into the valley. That would be the area on this 
western side here. They're just uh, unable to take advantage of, or take their land at all. So they're left without their inheritance over the next uh, probably about 200 years, 100 or 200 years before you have the uh, story of their migration north that's given in Judges chapter, Judges chapter 17. Now the next time we hear from the tribe of Dan is in Judges chapter 13. Turn with me there and we'll just do a survey tonight of one of my uh, favorite people in the Old Testament is Samson. Now, Samson, I love to talk about both Jephthah and Samson because there's such a failure on the part of contemporary evangelical Christians to appreciate and understand what is going on in the book of Judges. And what happens when they get to the book of Judges is they tend to look at these people through the lens of Hebrews chapter 11. Now, if you hold your place there, you don't have to, but if you just hold your place there and Genesis, I'll flip over to Judges 11 just a minute and read a, read a passage to you. In, in Hebrews 11, there is a list of great heroes of the faith, men who trusted God at key moments and saw God give them victory in various ways in the Old Testament. The problem is that people tend to read this too superficially, and they extrapolate from the fact that somebody's mentioned there to this some sort of idealized vision that they were uh, tremendously mature believers who, uh, whose lives characterized great faith all the time. And in many cases, they did not. They were, in, in many cases, great failures spiritually, but they managed to trust God and come through in the clinches once in their life, which gives the rest of us great hope because Many of us identify with the failures of many of these men and the inability to trust God, and yet there are times when we know we rise to the challenge and pass the test. Let's just, I'll just begin reading in Hebrews 11.30. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. What more shall I say? He's running out of space. He says, the time would fail me to tell of Gideon. Now, Gideon also led the nation back into idolatry. Gideon was no great, valiant warrior. There's a lot of sarcasm there when the angel of the Lord shows up in Judges chapter 6 and says, oh, Gideon, valiant warrior. And he's hiding down in the, in the wine press, threshing out the uh, grain, hoping that the Midianites and Amalekites won't spot him. And then after the angel of the Lord gives him his uh, marching orders to go against the Midianites, he wants to test uh, God, not really to find out this is really what God wants him to do, but he's trying to come up with something so difficult that God won't be able to do it so he can get, get out from under the job. And uh, then after it's all over with, the people come to Gideon and they ask him uh, to be their king. And in a great show of what is really false humility, he says, no, 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 I'm not going to be your king. And then he does two things that indicate that it's false humility. The first thing that he does is he sets up this ephod, which is a priestly garment that he's obviously decorated, probably made of gold with uh, jewels on it, and the people come to worship it. So he introduces them to idolatry. 
But the real clue in all of this is that he names his son Abimelech. And Abimelech in the Hebrew means my father is king. Melech is a Hebrew word for king. Av is the word for father. And when you put that little, that I in there, that means that's a first person reflexive pronoun. My father is king. So Gideon had a great moment of faith when he trusted God and they defeated the Midianites, but then he fell into carnality not long after that. Uh, Barak, we've studied Barak in Judges chapter 5, uh, 4 and 5. He failed to really trust God and to be the masculine leader God wanted him to be. And so Deborah said, well, because of that, God's going to take the victory away from you and give it to a woman who's going to be the one who's going to really bring about the victory. So Barak was kind of a, a pansy. And um, then there's Samson and Jephthah. And that's uh, Samson is the focus of our study, but Jephthah uh, takes it a step further. He's raised out in the uh, wild lands west of the Jordan and raised in a pagan environment, and he doesn't understand how God operates, just like a lot of Christians today don't understand how God operates. And yet people come to this passage with Jephthah's daughter when he makes this vow to God that, uh, God, if you give me... If you give me victory over the uh, uh, Amorites, then I will then I will sacrifice whatever comes out of the door of my house to to uh, I'll sacrifice whatever comes out of the door of my house to greet me when I come home to you. And see, this isn't any different from people today who try to bargain with God. God, you know, I committed this sin yesterday. And I sure don't want anybody to find out about it. And I'll just straighten up my life, or I'll I'll give a you know five hundred dollars to the church this weekend, or I'll light a bunch of candles and say a bunch of hail marys. I'll do any. I'll bargain with you. Whatever you want, I'll give it to you. Just just don't let anybody find out. Don't let me get caught. Don't let me get in trouble, or something like that. People are always trying to bargain with God. That is a very pagan concept. And it runs through certain Christian denominations very heavily. Well, that's not any different from Jephthah. He's got this idea that he can bargain with God, even though God has already told him that he's going to have victory over the Amorites. Uh, he's not any different from, from um, Gideon. He really didn't believe God, so he, he makes a vow. I'll, I'll offer a sacrifice. And, and he, there, there's uh, evidence of human sacrifice among the Canaanites at that time. And the text says that when he came home after the victory, his daughter came running out of the door to greet him, and he did to her as he, as he vowed. And what did he vow? He vowed to offer her up as a burnt offering. The Hebrew says as an olah, which refers to that which goes up, a, a, the smoke going up from a burnt offering. And uh, it's amazing how many evangelicals just cringe at that that notion that, that Jephthah would do such thing. How could somebody who's a believer sacrifice their daughter? Well, the same way somebody who's a believer could have adultery and conspire to kill the husband, cover it up, which is what David did. Christians have sin natures, and Christians are, are sinners, and they're capable of doing all of the horrible things any unbeliever can do if they don't have any biblical truth in their soul. If they don't know any doctrine, if they don't know any better, they're going to act just like the pagan environment around them. And that is, that is the basic argument of the whole book of, of, of Judges. Where did I put it? Judges, where's that verse? 
I've got it somewhere in here. Well, I've lost it. Judges 17.6, that everyone did, there was no king in the land at that time, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's governed by moral relativism. That's the whole theme of Judges. It starts off with a summary of their problem in the first uh, three chapters, down to about 3.5, and then you begin with the first judge, and each judge becomes successively worse than the judge before him. Othniel's the first judge. He's the son-in-law of Caleb. And nothing negative is said of him. Nothing negative is said of his wife, uh, Oxa. In fact, they are presented in a very positive light. And then you just go uh, right down the line from Othniel to Ahud to uh, Deborah and Barak and, and Gideon and Jephthah and Samson. And each time they get more pagan, they get worse. And it's a, the book of Judges is a very negative book. It's a, Dave, it's a book for the study of a culture in relativism because it shows how relativism seeps into the society at all levels. The leadership becomes compromised, the people are compromised, and the religious leaders are compromised. That's the, what happens at the end of the book with the, uh, the two appendices in which we'll see in relationship to Dan is that the people become compromised because of sin. And so Samson fits into that scenario. He's the last judge. He, his purpose is to go against the Philistines. They are the oppressor at that particular time. But if you read through the book of Judges, you will notice that Othniel delivers the nation. Ehud, who is the uh, left-handed assassin, uh, he delivers the nation from Eglon, uh, the <clears throat> king of Moab, who is, uh, I always liked, liked that episode when Lefty killed Fatty in the outhouse. And um, then you have Deborah and Barak, and Deborah, um, Deborah is a strong uh, woman who knows what's right, but, but Barak fails to be the male leader he should be. Then Gideon. It leads the nation into idolatry. And then you have the episode with his son Abimelech who tries to uh, lead the nation and, and just leads them further into paganism. Then you have Jephthah and the sacrifice of his daughter. And then Samson. Samson fits within a deteriorating cycle. And when you get to Samson, everybody else has delivered the nation from their oppressor, but Samson doesn't. At the end of the Samson story, Samson tears down... The uh, temple knocks down their house, but he doesn't defeat the Philistines. It's not until David comes along finally to defeat, uh, to defeat the Philistines. Uh, it's interesting that when you do a timeline at this particular time, not long, about 10 years after Samson is born, Samuel is born. Samson is the failure. Samuel will be the success. He will be the last Judge, but his story is reserved for First Samuel. So we see what happens with uh, Samson. He is the Danite judge. In um, verse two, we read there was a certain man from Zorah of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And every time. Uh, Every time we get into this story of uh, a story in the Old Testament where the Bible tells us that the wife was barren, 
our ears ought to prick up a little bit because it only happens to six women in the Old Testament. I mean, it happened to others, but we're only told about six, and each one is significant. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and then we come to uh, the mother of Samson. And God is doing something here. It's no a happenstance that she is a barren. Uh, she's barren for uh, two reasons. One is God has a specific plan for her to be the mother of Samson, and he's going to do some things to the nation as with, through Samson, but also because in the Mosaic Law there was the uh, specific statement that when the nation was disobedient to God, the the wombs would be empty, that it was a sign of divine discipline on a nation that was disobedient to God. This is why they're under the oppression of the Philistines. They're in that fourth stage of, of divine discipline outlined in Leviticus chapter 26. And so his wife is barren. She has no children. The angel of the Lord appears to her, and the angel of the Lord uh, begins to... Um, the angel of the Lord begins to tell her that he is, she is going to conceive and she's going to bear a son. And this son is going to be Samson. Now, before I get any further into Samson, I need to back up and look at something because I jumped ahead in my notes and I just want to go back and do one more thing in Genesis 49:16. Dan shall judge his people. And this is uh, probably fulfilled in the Samson narrative because he is a... He is one who uh, judges the people at a, at, a, at a minor level. He may be rebellious, apostate, and self-absorbed, but he still functions as a judge. And so the prophecy was that Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. But then we have a further statement made in uh, Genesis fourteen seventeen. And there we have this imagery of the serpent. I want you to notice two things in this verse, serpent and heels. When was the last time we saw a serpent and heel mentioned in the same passage? That takes us back to the promise of the Messiah in Genesis 3.15 that the serpent, Satan, would wound the seed of the woman on the, on the heel, but he, the seed of the woman, would wound him on the head. So there's a, as soon as you read serpent and heels here, there's something in the background that sort of vibrates in the back of your head going, hmm, this isn't a real positive image here. And the reason I want to say that is that there are two approaches to the interpretation of the, of the metaphor here and the imagery here. The first approach is to look at this, as, uh, at this verse as a prophecy related to Samson. Now, the number of rabbis take this position. There's a number of evangelicals that have taken this position. Kyle and Delich took this position in their commentary. And the, the, the application, they would say, is, see, this isn't, this isn't a lion attacking with power. This is talking about a serpent that's, that's camouflaged by the side of the trail. And as the uh, horse and rider come by, the viper uh, strikes at the horse, and the horse rears up and throws the rider. And so this talks about a more subtle, more cunning uh, form of attack. And so the argument is that this is fulfilled in Samson, who uh, through cunning confounds the Philistines, and he topples their horse when he uh, tears their house down in First Samuel chapter 16. 
Now, another important thing that we should note here is just that there's a, a change in the words for serpent. The word, first word is the Hebrew word nachash, which just refers to any generic sort of snake or serpent. And it's also used to refer to Satan in Genesis uh, chapter 3. So the first statement, Dan shall be a nachash by the way. And as soon as you read that word nachash with Genesis 3 in the background, uh, I think you'd have negative connotations. The second word, a viper by the path, uses a synonym, but it talks about a, a more specific kind of snake. This is... Um, Sephiphon, uh, and this is a poisonous snake, a viper or an adder, possibly a horned snake, and a number of translations translated as a horned snake as the New American, New American Standard does. So the first approach to this prophecy is that uh, this is using a serpent, not in a negative way, but just emphasizing it's secretive, it's cunning, it's disguised, and this is fulfilled in Samson. The second option sees the association of a serpent with Dan as reminiscent of the serpent in the garden. This is reinforced by the use of the term serpent and heel, as I've already alluded to here, and so we have to make a decision. Is this talking about something rather positive about Samson, or is this talking about something that is <clears throat> rather negative? When we get into the scriptures from Genesis 3 to Revelation, we see this imagery of the serpent, that the great dragon in Revelation 12:9 was cast out of heaven, the serpent of old called the devil and Satan. So which of these two images are we talking about here? And I would argue that this is, it's not likely that this is a, a, a reference to the cunning of Samson. First of all, because the serpent really isn't known for cunning. It's, it's not, it doesn't have that, that sense to, to the concept of a serpent. Uh, other animals may have that idea, but not a serpent. This is more disguised. Second is that the word for judge in Dan and the word Dan is that word Dean, it's not Shaphat. Shaphat is the word that we have for, for Samson. So it's, it's making too much of the judgeship, trying to tie that to, to Samson, when I think that the first statement, if there's an allusion to Samson at all in that period, that Dan will judge, his, uh, judge the other tribes, might, might be a reference to Samson, so there wouldn't need to be an additional allusion to Samson in, uh, in verse 17. Here, however, I think the imagery with serpent is overwhelmingly an emphasis on evil. And in, in, in the book of Judges, we see that there is a lack of spiritual depth or any kind of positive spiritual uh, attribute for Samson at all. And then in the subsequent chapters, we see that in their migration to the north, they establish an alternate worship site. They establish an alternate priesthood. Uh, when we come later on, we'll see that under Jeroboam I, when he has two golden calves made, and he tells the people, "These are the this is the God that took you out of out of Egypt. This is the God of your fathers," and leads them into idolatry. He sets up one uh, worship site in. Um, 
in Samaria, and he puts the other one up in Dan. And so it is in the territory of Dan that you see this ongoing uh, uh, emphasis on idolatry and on their uh, apostasy. So I think that that the passage in uh, Genesis 49, uh, 16 is an allusion to the fact that Dan will be a tribe in the future that will lead the nation into idolatry and be a source of evil. And this is played out by the fact that, that when you do get into the tribal lists in Chronicles, Dan is left out. When you get into Revelation 7, Dan is left out. It's not until the Millennial Kingdom that you have anything positive said about Dan. Okay, well, let's go back and briefly hit on on Samson. So Samson's birth is announced in chapter 13, and the, the, the parents don't seem real bright to me for some reason. I've just always had that sense about them. And the father says, well, let's, let's see if we can get that man back, uh, which, of course, is the angel of the Lord, and get some information about how to raise this child. And so the angel returns and tells the mother that, 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 that he will be a Nazarite from birth. Now, to be a Nazarite meant three things, that usually it was someone who took a vow uh, at some point in their life, and during the period of that vow, these conditions would be true. But in the case of Samson, this was supposed to be true from his birth. First of all, he could not drink any wine or grape juice. So this is not an argument that anybody can use uh, against the use of alcoholic beverages. He couldn't drink wine. He couldn't drink grape juice. He couldn't eat grapes. He couldn't even touch a vine. Okay, that was completely off limits. Second thing was that he couldn't touch a dead body at all. Couldn't touch a, a, a dead body, come near a dead body. And third, a Nazarite could not cut his hair during the time of the Nazarite vow. So those were the three things that were imposed upon Samson uh, from the very beginning. And what we see starting in chapter 14 is that Samson doesn't have any inclination whatsoever to fulfill his vow or to be obedient to the Lord. He is completely focused on his own uh, personal pleasure and fulfilling his own lust. We see this example of a spoiled brat in the beginning of chapter 14. Samson went down to Timnah. So a woman in Timnah, the daughters of the Philistines. See, there's his first mistake. He's going to marry, he wants to marry outside of Israel. He finds a pagan woman. He's not interested in Jewish women. He wants to marry a Philistine woman. And he goes back to his parents and in a demanding manner tells them that he's seen this Philistine woman. He wants to marry her. And they try to convince him otherwise, but to no end. They don't seem to be very assertive in their uh, parental responsibilities, and <clears throat> but verse four is an interesting verse. But his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord. Now, see, you, you got to stop and spend some time with that verse because God often works in such a way as to move things on the chessboard, as it were, 
But that doesn't mean that God's responsible and that Samson can just say, well, see, God had a purpose here, so I'm absolved of any responsibility. Samson was responsible for his decisions. It's that God was allowing him and giving him the full range of his negative volition because what God is going to do through Samson is basically use him as a bull in a china closet. Even though Samson is, uh, has no spiritual interest, that doesn't mean that God can't use him to shake things up, which is what God's going to do. So all verse 4 is saying is that God is still in control even though Samson is personally out of control. So he goes down to uh, Timnah with his father and mother. And where did he come there in verse 5? Anybody looking? He came to the vineyards of Timnah. See, this is one of the reasons I love reading the Samson story is because if you don't read it carefully, you miss all the little juicy things that the Holy Spirit is throwing at us. He's not supposed to drink wine, eat grapes, touch touch grapes, or go near vineyards. So where is it? Where is he? He's hanging out in the vineyards of Timnah. So right away, there's a big hint in the text telling us that he is not uh, at all con- seems, seems to be not at all concerned about his particular vow. And to his surprise, a young lion came roaring against him. Now this is how. The, there's the outworking of God's plan. And this lion attacks him, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. Now, we'll close with this question. How's the Spirit of God working in the Old Testament? See, in the New Testament, we think that when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon somebody or fills somebody, they're in right relationship to the Holy Spirit, and that has to do with spirituality and spiritual growth. But this guy is a self-absorbed, disobedient, rebellious adolescent who just can't wait to fulfill his own lust, and the Spirit of God comes upon him. Hmm. Perhaps the ministry of God the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament in, in these scenarios is quite different from the way it is in the, Old Te- in, in the New Testament. It's not the same. The Holy Spirit is coming upon him for the purpose of supplying leadership for the nation Israel. I didn't say spiritual leadership. I said leadership. Uh, The Spirit of God comes upon various people in the Old Testament for various reasons, one of which is just to give military commanders military skill to defeat the enemies of Israel, irregardless of their spiritual maturity, their, their desire to know God, or anything else. That's what happened with with uh, Jephthah. Same thing is happening here with Samson. And so he tears the lion apart with his bare hands as one would tear apart a young goat. And But he doesn't tell his parents. So we see another element to his character that he's rather secretive because he's not supposed to be where he was in the vineyard. And that's where he kills the lion. Now we're just going to stop there And we're going to come back and pick up with Samson uh, and the lion next time. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to see how prophecies in the Old Testament are worked out and fulfilled over history and that your word is always confirmed. And as you say in Isaiah, that no other God can do this. Uh, Show us a God that can tell the end from the beginning.
But this is a tremendous confirmation of your truth, your veracity, and the reliability of your word. Father, we pray that we might be encouraged and strengthened by this study. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.